0: This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer
1: and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit.
0: We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy.
1: You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl
0: Yes, we're good to go, Anna. Oh, sigh of relief. Mr. SD card <laughs> wouldn't work. We're in the garden, not we Mieke and Rutger's garden. We're sort of eaten alive by the midgets. Yes. But we protected ourselves with some natural ball. Hope it works. Let's see <laughs> how far we <laughs> can get with this conversation. Thank you for being here. Let's start the talk with your the start of your career, actually, as a professional, when you worked for Artis, the zoo. Yeah. And that's where you sort of learned how to work with the relation between humans, the f- quite particular relation that is in a zoo between humans and animals. So maybe you can share some stories about that episode because you, you created landscapes, for instance, with landscape designers within the zoo for particular animals. And you've observed the animals.
1: Yeah, I think two, two things. Um, I didn't create the landscapes, um, but I was working in the educational department. So it was more about how do we uh, transfer the knowledge and insights that we have, with the living collection of artists, as you can say, it to the to the very broad public of 1.4 million visitors that are visiting artists every year. And another important point is not only about animals. People forget that it's dieren tuin, so like it's it's animal garden. Uh, and there are lots of plants uh, in artists that are also part of the collection. Artists is actually short for natura artis magistra which means nature is the teacher of the arts and sciences. So for me that was very interesting because I thought that is really relevant in the in fundamental ecological time we are living in right now. So that's why I started working at the zoo. And when I started working there, uh, I didn't work in the um, uh, educational department of the zoo per se, but I was part of a museum team. I was actually developing a museum on the relationship between man and nature. So I worked with an anthropologist, a biologist, and a fantastic professor in nature, culture, and landscape. So I was working specifically for three and a half years on a museum project. And then I also got involved in projects in the park.
0: More pragmatic, more hands-on.
1: Yeah, know both. So the, the, the museum project was a lot of content development. So if you're going to... Um, if you're going to start a museum that's about the relation between man and nature, what are you actually going to narrate? And it's super interesting, of course, because there's so many ways you could look at that. So one of the things I look I dived into was, for example, the, the way in which we categorize and structure nature. So historically, we have all kinds of uh, manners to organize what we call nature. So we're very familiar now with the Linnean system, Linnaeus, yeah, which just names everything and boxes everything,
0: categorizes,
1: categorizes yes. everything, and that also conflicts um, with the relational reality that we have now um, with all these other beings, because it's not necessarily the boxed reality that matters, but it's the relational reality, and we still haven't got the instruments for that, or the language, or scientific framework. Um yes, uh, for example, in biology studies, I think a lot of uh, biology studies are still fixed on um, taxonomy so um, and actually there were already very early biologists, even Darwin uh, famously was studying barnacles for years, sort of like these small uh, crustacean creatures that live on whales, for example, and on rocks and um, the thing is, it is, if you look at it, it's just one grey area of lineage. Like, in fact, it's sort of impossible to say where one species ends and the other species begins. But still, we have the tendency to box the species. But with that, we can also forget how related we actually are to the rest of life. Because it, it gives us sort of a framework or a premise to think that we are separate from other Being. beings. Because we live so-called in a different box. And uh, we don't. And we don't. And I, I think it's super urgent that we uh, actually find ways of getting rid of the sectoral thinking and um, to not only understand, but to also implement and institutionalize all this interrelationality.
0: And in uh, zoos, we tend to put animals in boxes, you could yeah. say. Yeah. And sometimes reality bites, or. Can you tell me the story of what happened with the, with the birds that were set free? <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, there's a uh, um, one of my uh, favorite group of animals at an the uh, night herons. They're called beautiful, very elusive in Dutch you're birds. Dutch you call Yeah, well, they are called uh, kwakken. Kwakken. But they used to be part of the so-called zoo collection, and uh, at some point they were threatened, and they tried to um, release them in the wild, so to say. So they brought them uh, to Flevoland, and they released them from a van to repopulate the area with. Uh, with the quaker. but the birds th- themselves didn't agree. Uh, a large part of them just returned to Arthus, and uh, the next day they were all back right. again. <laughs> the so
0: they were released with a lot of promotion and um, <laughs> press, probably, <laughs> and the next day they were they were back.
1: They were back, and they just decided that life is much easier if you don't have to catch your own fish, and uh, wow. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can empathize with that. Oh, and just for fun, yeah. tell me the story about the vulture colony.
1: Yeah, yeah, well. It's
0: sort of the same.
1: Yeah, the, the thing range. is, w- what I find very interesting now that there are, well, it's very few still that I know of, but I know that Thijs uh, de Zeo is, for example, looking into these projects with his zoo of the future. Uh, but there's, um, I think it's in Zurich, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a vulture colony uh, that lives there. But in winter times, they just migrate uh, to the south of Europe uh, to have a nice sunny winter stop, like, like a lot of Dutch people actually also do. And, and then they return again um, uh, to, the, to their rock in their zoo uh, whenever they want. And I really like this idea of the voluntary zoo in which animals just move in and out wherever they feel like it.
0: Well, Anna, let me introduce you properly to our listeners now. You are passionate about our current ecological reality and in your practice you are trying to get a grip on that reality. You do this by alternating between the roles of diplomat, advisor, content creator and farmer amongst others. And your personal mission is to bring about regenerative crossovers between nature and culture and to translate these into concrete projects and propositions. And part of this effort involves creating a constructive dialogue between scientists, artists, business people, politicians, citizens and, wherever possible, invite non-humans at the table. Wow.
1: well <laughs> We Thanks. couldn't cue that
0: better. Thank you, Rooster, <laughs> for tuning in. Um, Now, we are going to talk about two of your streams of activities that you motor or co-host. That's the Embassy of the North Sea (laughs) and the regenerative farm that you started on five hectares in the Netherlands, close to Nijmegen, Mm -hmm. with your partner. When did you start this farm? It's quite recent. Two years ago. It's young, yeah, Yeah, a young farm. Two
1: years ago on the ground, but we've been working for a
0: long time. But let's start with uh, making the North Sea manifest. So you co-founded the collective The Embassy of the North Sea, which departs from the starting point that the sea owns itself. And the podcast series Voices of the North Sea explores this point of view. And through connection, imagination and representation, The Embassy of the North Sea makes political space for sea, sea emancipation. And that's important legal personhood for ocean bodies. And what I think is really interesting that you cut up your activities in three long um, periods. There's a list. There are years of listening, you could say. Mm-hmm. There are years of speaking, and there are years of negotiating. Can you tell me more about why you choose to do that and where you're at at the moment?
1: Yeah, the thing. It's all about the question, like, what is proper representation? Um, so perhaps to give some context why we started this, um, of course we have a lot of nature organizations and NGOs that are supposed to represent, that are representing, you could say, nature. And they do it with all their heart and all, uh, all the instruments they have available to them. But the issue is that that representation is never direct. So what you see is, for for example, at the COP conference, you have the, the table with the nation states that where actually the decisions are made. And then a sort of a side room of it. you have these NGOs that also try to get their points to the main table. But all, more, all the more than humans, all the other beings that we're surrounded with are not represented Voiced. directly at the political table. Um, so it's a lot about presence. So how can you actually make... Um make these voices that are already there present. um it's just the same when you have a meeting with your colleagues and one of your colleagues is not there, the meeting will definitely go differently, and probably the points of your colleagues will be less uh of the missing colleague will be less represented and the outcome
0: will be Why do you think it's so uh hard for us to to image the the, the sea as as um as an entity, because we talked about it yesterday, yeah. how the sea, yeah. the sea becomes an enormous sort of blank. Yeah. And we talked about yesterday how, how we are at a fringe right now, you could say, the fringe of Europe, if mm-hmm. you talk about it from the land side. Mm-hmm. But the seaside of it looks quite different because the sea is, is an ideal way of transport, for instance, from yeah. early days on. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a busy bustle here in the 8th century at Iona, for instance. So the sea is much more dynamic and much more diverse and powerful than we think it is. Why is it so hard for us to relate to it?
1: I think it's also because we have um, a sort of culture of fear, especially in the Netherlands, when it comes to the sea, which also comes from somewhere. eh? I mean, uh, we had the watersnoodramp in Zeeland, uh, which large parts of uh, Zeeland were actually swallowed by the sea. Uh, so I really do get where that comes from and I'm, I'm not here to um, to play down the sincerity of events such as that. I mean, that must have been a real awful to, to be in that situation. But what I'm seeing is that political thinking and representation uh, that we have now, the instruments that we have to, to actually run democracy, doesn't befit the entangled reality that we live in and also is usually very short term in thinking. So what happened after the after the Watersnoodramp is that you see that we have this sort of you could call it schutting's um, mentality like we like you have around your little garden you you sort of start your own It's again boxes. <laughs> yeah, it's again boxes. You Box start again thinking to it's very defensive uh, it's based also largely on fear and distrust and we started this sort of dike mentality in which we build these dikes and we literally visually remove the sea uh, from our vision? From our vision, from our experience. Uh, but if you look properly at the Netherlands, it's just one big delta. It's just one big interconnected body with the sea. And um, we have sort of blocked the sea out of our culture, blocked the sea out of our consciousness. Literally, if you look at the the map of the sea, of the map of the Netherlands, the Dutch part of the North Sea is not even on there. Um, and also, it's always a blank space. like The land is filled in. The sea is just uh, an even color of blue yeah. all the way. But
0: how do you do that with Embassy of the North Sea? How do you fill that empty container
1: Well, first with of meaning all, and
0: visuals and, yeah, and, and ima- imagination? I
1: think what is important is that we shouldn't, uh, we're not there to fill an empty container because it's not empty. So the whole point of the first phase is to show that actually the North Sea is not empty at all. It's because th- those voices are already there. So that's why it's very important that we start with listening. So listening is the, the first phase of our um, embassy program. And um, How does that
0: work? Give us yeah. some examples.
1: Yeah, listening is for us a very broad way of reconnecting, you could say, but also um, amplifying what is already there in the North Sea. So uh, one way you could do it is very literal. You could put a hydrophone uh, underneath the water surface and just listen with a microphone from what's actually there. And that's already amazing if you do know that in the North Sea because there's a lot of industrial soundscapes going on. So you have a lot of the uh, construction works on windmills, uh, shipping, traffic, uh, engines. Almost difficult to hear any uh, of the, the fish sounds or the what they would call the natural sounds between brackets of the North Sea. Uh, and what we are doing now... It's a multiple-year program in which we have several teams on the ground that are actually working in a sort of interdisciplinary groups, and they're researching uh, things in place. Because in our search for proper political representation in these times, the question also becomes: What entity do you re- do you actually need to represent? And uh, what we're doing now a lot is that we represent individuals or species, but actually that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, in these intertwined times that we're living in. So what would make more sense, I think, is to represent place-based communities in which communities are not only uh, human uh, communities, but human and more than humans um, that live in a specific place. So such a community would be very different in Zeeland, around the Delta Works, than, for example, near Texel. So this, this is what we're looking into. And we have now four case study groups in which an artist, a storyteller and a scientist are working together multiple years in a specific place. We have a a Delta case uh, group in which they are looking into ways, how can we make a more inclusive coastal protection, and perhaps we shouldn't even call it coastal protection uh, scheme, so how can we live in another way with this dynamic uh, interrelation with the sea in which not only... Uh, human interests are represented, but also
0: but in a way interests. you're trying to unbox our thinking and our doing
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and and that and that we do in um, in many different ways. so th- there, for example, the scientist that is working on the team, Martin Kleinhans is a fantastic you could call him a professor in water and sand and he has built this huge metronome in which he can simulate the tidal movements of the coasts. and then uh, Kårelsen is part of the team as an artist he Engaged a lot with field practice and the communities there. He's, he comes from Zeeland himself, so he knows the, the place very well. And he made a seaweed suit in which he dived into the Oosterschelde to find out uh, what it was like to be a seaweed. And uh, so Darko Lagunas. So it's also really playful. It's also very playful. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And Darko yeah. Lagunas, for example, he's there as a sort of activist sociologist, and he made these beautiful portraits of people that really. Um, that really feel, feel, are feeling connected to certain non-humans in the Delta area. So, for example, he has this beautiful interview with somebody who feels extremely connected to dunes and that just he's just walking with him within the landscape and a person like that can see so much. He would be called an amateur by the science world and probably also not being taken seriously by uh, the political world. But perhaps a person like that might be the best representative that we can send out for the dunes. For the
0: dunes. Yes, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, where are you at now? Because I th- on paper, the listening phase sh- should be over, and you should be trans- transforming to the speaking
1: phase. H- yeah. How, how, how should? Yeah, that's we very look interesting. Because or is it? <laughs> is it
0: just a thing? No, on it's paper? not. It's not
1: just a thing on paper. Like because we you do, keep we do
0: listening, of course, all the time. You you always keep your ears open.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's even more than that because we discovered it's so. Important to listen properly and that there's so much we still um, don't know and we're sort of ignorant of because we didn't listen properly and there's so much to learn for us uh, as a political system and uh, and when I say us I'm talking about the the Dutch context and the European context Um, so listening has become so um, intriguing to us and we've discovered all these kinds of different ways in which you can listen to the North Sea, uh, and to yourself and your relation to the North Sea, um, that we come up that um, actually s- it's, it's always speaking that has been dominating our politics for the for the last decade. So it's even in the name of the, the architecture that we give to our politics, we say parliament, and parley is, is, is speaking. Um, and you can have uh, speaking time, spreektijd, political mm-hmm. speaking time, uh, if you want to make a point. And we, we yeah, actually Listening think, is
0: underrated in the political system.
1: Well, it's not only underrated, but it's also thought to be a passive thing. And I think it could be an active political act. So what we're, what we're focusing on right now, this year and next year, we're going to extend our listening time with at least one year, is that uh, we want to build and design an um, ornament. We're going to do this together with Studio Ossidiana. Um, an ornament uh, that is sort of... Um, An alternative to the parliament that we have politically we're going to make a sort of flexible architectural space that we can take to several places in which we can invite policy makers and politicians to come into this space and within that context um, engage with all the kinds of different listening insight and methods that we have accumulated over the last years and that's going to be sort of the you could say the end of our listening phase in which we sort of present packages. And we're thinking also of doing it, doing this like specifically to different target groups, which you can just give, okay, you're going to have a meeting about the North Sea within a ministry context. And we can have this for you, like this set that you can bring to.
0: It's a lot about language also, eh? parliament, parlay, audiment, listening. Yeah. Um, We had this contextual talk with Suzanne Delawal. She's a climate activist. And um, she inverted a megaphone into a listening device, which I thought was really interesting because a megaphone is sort of a symbol for activism. Like, we have a message that needs to go out. But she thought, you know, as an activist, you need to listen, which totally resonates with what you're saying right now.
1: Yeah, I think we need to listen a lot more and not only to, to all the other beings, but definitely also to indigenous cultures like we have not been listening properly to indigenous people and they it's not a coincidence that five percent of the population of the world which is still indigenous is actually taking care of 85 percent of biodiversity on this planet it's not a coincidence at all repeat that
0: because those are important numbers 5%
1: of the people of the world that still... Which
0: is like nothing. Which
1: is nothing, but that's Mm -hmm. the the indigenous peoples that are still there, are now taking care of 85% of all life on earth. Wow. That's amazing.
0: I'm listening, Anna. (laughs) I'm listening. (laughs) That's amazing. And why? Because
1: they know how to live in a fundamental interrelated way. So there is something we should listen to.
0: And learn from. And learn from. Because we forgot.
1: Yeah.
0: Really fast, if you think about it. That's yeah. what worries me that things disappear in the time of one or two generations. Knowledge yeah. disappears, languages disappear within two, one or two well, generations. I think we
1: have a lot of knowledge, but uh, uh, as Robin Wall Kimmer would say, she's, by, by the way, um, a Native American uh, writer, speaker, thinker, but also a professor in botany. She's written an amazing book, Braiding Sweetgrass, if you want to. Uh, you should read it. It's just a fantastic book. She would say we have a lot of knowledge, but very little wisdom in our culture. Yeah,
0: let's bring that back. Let's move on to your other uh, activity, which takes up the rest of your life, if I
1: (laughs) be correct. (laughs) If I'm not at all.
0: It's Bodemzicht. It's your farm. And Bodemzicht is a regenerative farm and a learning place. And bodemsicht translates as well. If you put it into Google Translate, it says bottom site." <laughs>
1: bottom view. A <laughs> oh, bottom view. which <laughs> sounds like a nice house at the sea.
0: But it would translate something as soil perspective or focus on the soil. <laughs> and it is a protozoa. And zoop is already s- sort of a new word, which is, s- says a lot. It's, it's, it's a fusion of the word zoe, which is life, and co op, which is cooperation. So a zoop, in this case, is an experimental site for making kin with all forms of life on land. And there's so much to say about the farm, Anna. So, how are we going to do this in 10 minutes?
1: Uh, well, Let's
0: start with. No, you start. Yeah, and I'm
1: just going to start. Like, yes. Okay, so Bodemzicht is a regenerative farm uh, and learning place. And uh, the whole thing about regenerative is that it wants to get beyond this uh, sustainability framework that we have. Because if you think about it, sustainability is only about... Uh, reducing our negative impact so fantastic I can live very sustainable and then I have a small uh, impact uh, footprint yeah a a slightly smaller uh, negative ecological footprint and perhaps if I'm really good and I don't believe in this but okay I can become something that's called climate neutral which I think is just
0: which a lot of products and organizations claim these things yeah
1: because it's based on compensation and accountancy um, but
0: boxes again
1: boxes but i think it's you're either degrading or you're re- regenerating and these are two paradigms and regenerative is all about how to make a positive impact as a human being so it mean how to sequester more carbon than emitted how to create more life um, then to create how to create meaningful communities so it's also a social component and actually make a living out of it win-win-win social ecological and economic
0: tell us how you do it maybe start with the soil and maybe the grass yeah
1: um the, well the thing is for example we have a, a no dig market garden so this is a, a vegetable garden uh, in which we don't dig and we don't plow um we do, we disturb the soil as little as possible. Of course, there's always a little bit of soil disturbance, but it's a it's a very um, perhaps it's first good to say why we don't plow. Uh, actually, for three reasons. If you plow, you turn the soil around. The carbon that was stored in the soil uh, gets oxidized and uh, as CO two. So you're just uh, adding adding to the greenhouse gas emissions. You also make your soil more viable to erosion. It's turned around, you just need heavy rain or wind, and there goes your topsoil. Uh, you lose water because it's, it just. Um, and you disturb into the, the order
0: that's there, or you disturb the soil life. The, 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 the worst thing life.
1: is that you disturb the soil life. Uh, so there's this whole mycelium that's running through the uh, network underground. It's structured in a certain manner, you just cut through that. Um, you destroy nematodes and worms, but also if you turn it around, the microbes, the bacteria and fungi, the smaller microbes uh, that are made for living underground, are suddenly baking in the sun, so they die off. So three reasons to stop.
0: But we all know the image of the farmer that ploughs the land, which yes. has always been seen as, you know, a metaphor for. A hard The hard-working humanity.
1: Yes, plowing is is a very, very deep cultural thing. It's even before the tractor and before the horse. You could say that uh, the beginning of agriculture is when the plow first uh, was used in Mesopotamia. So that's like 8,000, 10,000 years uh, ago. Could be with the start of the Nords. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can time. see a relation there. <laughs> <laughs> Random relationship, yeah. But it's interesting um, because it's so deeply culture ingrained that it's also something that's difficult not to do. It's hard
0: to get away from,
1: hard get from away the image. From. Yeah, but the, the, the reality is that our soils have been degrading fast, faster and faster, and it's just as like with the climate crisis. You first, you, you cannot see it, and in the long term, you see how, how serious it is. Uh, it's estimated now by Commonland, who is also working on regeneration, that we're losing about 30... Um, football fields of fertile soil per minute Oof. per minute and the uh, the interesting thing is that without topsoil we just simply cannot exist because all life comes from this thin layer of topsoil and it's also it can take a long time to regenerate if you do nothing it can take 500 to 1000 years to grow three centimeters of topsoil and we just dig it away we don't have any consciousness about soil Um, But the good news is, Anna,
0: that it is possible to regenerate the soil. It is
1: possible. Yeah, the good news is that it it is also something you can uh, build up rather quickly. And it's all about working, uh, well, managing, you could say it. I don't like the word too much, but that's what it's called, holistic management. It's all about managing interrelationships. So in our garden, for example, which is a very simple garden, it's just... 10, uh, 15 to 20 centimeters of compost that we just put on top of a grass field and we're growing our veggies in the compost. Um, The the thing with a system like that is that I am not at all uh, concerned that I need to feed my plants, for example. Why not? Because microbes, and especially fungi, we have a very fungal garden, are much better farmers than me. So it begins with acknowledging that some other species might be superior to, uh, to a human farmer. Uh, why is that? Because there's um, plants, they, they capture carbon to build their plant bodies. But they capture also some extra carbon to leak as sugars into the soil. There they make a deal with the microbes in the soil. In, in our case, in a garden, it will be mostly fungi. And uh, the deal is that the fungi get sugar... In exchange for the minerals that exactly that specific plant wants at that specific moment. As a human being, if you talk about empathy, as a human being, I could never, ever, ever guess if that plant is now looking for nitrogen or magnesium. I just cannot see it, but the fungi can.
0: So it's the perfect deal in the ground. It's a perfect
1: deal, because if I ensure that my fungi are thriving in my garden and fungi are pretty happy with just some basic carbon and water... Uh, and it's also not an input culture once they're there, they're there. My plants will be thriving because they get exactly what they need.
0: And they are because you're two years
1: yeah, they are. on the
0: way with I, the farm.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, the, the plants are really thriving. They also get better resiliency because of this symbiosis with, uh, with the fungi. Uh, and you can produce super intensively. And that also is something that made it very interesting to me. Um, because, for example, Richard Perkins in Sweden has been doing this for seven years and he's been registering his data very well. If you're interested, uh, check out Richdale Permaculture Farm. Uh, Ricardo has learned there... um, Your partner? My partner, sorry, Spanish biologist Ricardo Calamateo. He learned there uh, to farm uh, regeneratively. And um, the, the, the beautiful thing is that you can do it very intensely. So if your garden is thriving, if your soil life is thriving, you will have also a lot of production, which also means that you can grow more, it means that you can sell more, also that you can earn more money. So the, um, uh, Richard, with his least producing crops, are producing five times more per square meter in quantity than conventional farming, and his top producing crops up to 25 times more.
0: And do you also measure the ingredients with or, or the minerals and the within we, the vegetables?
1: No, we haven't done that yet, but we're starting up... Um, the food worth, so to yeah, say. Yeah, the nutritious value. Nutritious mean. value, yeah. 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 yeah, we are starting that up um, also with the first microbial uh, research into our garden and comparing that with other uh, types of farming.
0: Because in yeah. general, the nutritious value of vegetables... Yeah. Or crops have have gone down dramatically. I
1: know, and it's it's really worrisome also because, because it
0: looks the same, a carrot looks the same. It's yeah. it's again imagery, you know. You you think you should look at the same carrot as twenty five years yeah. ago, but it isn't.
1: But it definitely doesn't taste the and same. And that's spooky. Yeah, but that, that's the, the, the nice thing. Like, If you have a complex soil, you also have really, really complex taste. If I let people taste my rucola, it's a world of a difference with the rucola that they uh, buy in a supermarket. Because it's much richer in taste and probably also in nutrition. I know that um, there have been done the measurements with the eggs. So I know that our eggs are way more nutritious. Not our particular eggs, but the way in which we produce our eggs. So our hands are... Um, outside, eating grass and insects also the whole day. So they have a way more diverse diet and that's also translate in a, in a, in a way more nutritious egg. So for example, our eggs, is, uh, our eggs have way less cholesterol than the ones that you can buy in the supermarket, also the organic ones. And uh, more vitamin D and, and more of the, the good omegas. So that's this completely different egg, also in structure.
0: Yeah, Let's move to the eggs, or the chickens, the chickens. lady eggs, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the <chickens.
1: laughs>
0: because you have 250 of them, right?
1: Yeah, well, 49.
0: And they have their own function also in regenerate, regenerate the soil.
1: Yeah, I, I was called, my uh, chickens are the soil builders. They can super quickly uh, accelerate the process of soil building, and actually, to be honest, the soil building is done by the grasses and the microbes, uh, but the chickens, they make a herd impact, so... Uh, What we do is called holistic grazing, and it it means that you move your animals in paddocks and you make sure that they return only to the start, the starting point, when the place looks better than it did look before, which means more growth covering the soil, but also higher plants and broader leaves. So that's something that you can easily see when you just look at at a grass plant. If you give that kind of impact to grass, it will express itself fully because it's used to this cycle. These migration cycles are just is naturally co-evolved. So
0: you migrate the chicken
1: with grazers. from plot to plot. Yeah, we have like egg mobiles that we move uh, every two or three days, depending on the impact that they make. So what you see is this sort of apocaly- apocalyptic chicken impact. It looks like a sort of wasteland. And then they get a long time of rest. And then what you see is explosive grass growth and deep-rooting um, grass plants and exactly there it also happens what is happening in the garden so the the grasses take up the co2 to build the tall grass uh, bodies but they also leak it into the soil so it's a it's a way to get very quickly more carbon back into your soil and a beautiful thing about that because i'm not so interested in circular or climate neutral or whatever i think we should also get out of that rhetoric. But the beautiful thing about that is that if you have more carbon in your soil, you have more water retention. If you have more water, you can have more life in your soil. And if you have more life, you can have more deals with plants and just more carbon, uh, more water, more life. So it is actually uh, a spiral moving up.
0: It's a zoop.
1: Going to abundance. Everything and everybody
0: works together.
1: Yeah, and not only that, it's a system that accelerates itself towards abundance, which means that you can have trees that would be more resilient to uh, climate peaks but also overall you will just increase your production with while you increase life and there would you increase production and then you can also increase your income as a farmer
0: so on all this knowledge all these data also all these um yeah data how um are you in touch with lots of Regenerative farms all over the world, or in Europe, or
1: yeah, we're setting it up. Sharing spend... knowledge. Yeah, actually, we <laughs> we made a clear division also to keep our relationship healthy. Like Ricardo is supposed to be the full-time production farmer, uh, and I help out at the farm, but I'm um, I'm focusing more on the the towards regenerative. I think regenerative farming is super interesting, but in my ideal world, we are moving towards um, re- regenerative. Hospitals, regenerative schools, uh, regenerative politics. I, I think we just need, um, we can apply the same kind of principles and ideas to, to our own, whole society, basically. So we're working together with a lot of organizations to see how we can accelerate that transition. Uh, for example, I'm also an advisor for Stichting Landland, where we are um, financing and helping and starting um finding places for starting regenerative farmers to accelerate the transition. I want to at least help kickstart 100 other farmers. I don't want it to be only my little five hectares. Uh, and I'm working with Climate Farmers Europe. Uh, doing that, so that I'm uh, working with e- Ecosia. Um, I'm very aware of the people that are in the Netherlands working on regeneration. We are also schooling new regenerative farmers. The second batch is coming up now. So I'm very happy. Uh, that we're doing that, and uh, yeah, we're pretty. So well connected. it's
0: really important to be connected. Yeah, to, it's all to about. To be interconnected. It's
1: all about, actually, you could say Bodemzicht is a sort of a network farm in itself. Yeah. yeah.
0: But um, as in other moments, reality buys also here. Let's go back to the box <laughs> culture once again. Yeah. Um, you were telling me that you had problems with the local government about compensating. Nature for building your workstations.
1: Yeah, it's it's it has a lot to do with permits. The interesting thing is that um, the 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 stamp that I got is agriculture. But of course, I'm just as much nature or whatever you want to call it.
0: But there it starts. There it already starts. We only have two stamps. Yeah, it's agriculture or nature. It's the new stamps or. are not invented yet. Yeah,
1: it's either or. While regenerative is all about end end. Yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty difficult. Uh, to deal then with the sectoral reality. And, uh, well, one of the examples is um, that we were speaking with the province uh, about getting a long-term permit. And then still you get uh, questions for compensation, like, okay, if you're building uh, 250 square meters here, which is ex- essentially uh, actually is the essential infrastructure that we need to be able to regenerate five hectares of land, because we also need a small building to farm, Uh, That means that you need to compensate those 250 square meters uh, by taking it out of your agricultural land and redefining it as nature, so a different zoning plan, and just put some trees or something.
0: Which is nature, according to (laughs) the box people, right? It's supposed to be nature,
1: yeah. (laughs) Uh, And another beautiful example is that if uh, I'm going to dig ponds, and we're going to dig ponds because uh, my partner is extremely... um, he cannot live without amphibians. Let's put it like that. Uh, <laughs> 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 so if you, if we have the ponds and then the uh, the moves in, it's like this incredible, beautiful, uh, protected, uh, newt. Um, then I'm gonna have an issue
0: because then the whole it it might be so that the whole
1: yeah the thing uh, is, farm then there, is gonna then, be... Then are... gets
0: the stamp. <laughs> nature.
1: Well, probably not the whole farm, but the, the thing is that you're sort of locked in because you cannot get permits to change anything uh, if you have the red list species on your land. And our mission with Bodemzicht is to facilitate life. So our whole point is to bring all those species in. Um, so it's going to be... I'm very curious, but I'm also slightly anxious about what's, yes. what's going to happen. Uh, the more red, li- red list species will, um, will start to live... At Bodemzicht, yeah. We'll see.
0: Yeah. Well, we're getting to the end of the talk, Anna. Unfortunately, because there's so much t- more to say about the farm. Maybe next time. <laughs> but um, you were telling me that on your way to Mall, you took the slow passage, just like Sophie and I did. So you took the boat from Ein to Newcastle. Yeah. And was that the first time, actually, that you crossed the North Sea?
1: I've taken boats before, but never the one to Newcastle. So it was on my uh, wish list. Yeah.
0: And what happened?
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, first of all, I really liked the, the rhythm of the, the sea and to sleep with that. I had the feeling that my your body sort of um, has to get used to to. Yeah. Sophie
0: felt it for days after. She said, <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm still on the boat.
1: Yeah, I didn't have that, but I I found it comforting, sort of the rhythm of the sea. So that's really nice, and yeah, it's, it's just an um, a rare chance for me to to sort of. Uh, for a really short passage of time, be uh, in the middle of the North Sea. So I spent a lot of time just looking out on the deck and seeing what was going on around me. And uh, well, I had a very um, magical moment that would have been corny in any other context, but (laughs) 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 it was magical because I was looking out with the sunset over the North Sea. And uh, I saw for the first time uh, bottlenose dolphins um, and not only um, seeing them passing by as a group but jumping out like against a postcard Yeah, it was really like it ticked all the boxes, it was just so amazing to to experience, yeah.
0: <laughs> well thank you Anna for sharing this moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you for this talk. Thank you to be continued yeah. in another time, another place.
1: In another time with less <laughs>
0: In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.